All right, we come now, brothers and sisters, to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. And also, if you can look around you, there's probably several uh, loose-leaf study guides. And if you see one around you, feel free to grab them up this morning. Um, one of the things I want to mention to you before we pray, and before we read this text, is there's a phrase in the Old Testament... And you might have noticed it as you read through the Bible, is that Israel at times was said to do things from Dan to Beersheba. And that's a reference to geography reference, actually, in Israel to, from the northernmost part to the southern you know, most part of Israel. And the point there is and everybody in between. Okay, And so I want to say this, right? As we're about to pray this morning, we're going to pray from Dan to Beersheba, right? From the farthest part of this side of the room, so we'll take from Jacob Pierce to Hugh Muse this morning, and the point is everybody in between, and I really want to earnestly encourage you to simply offer up a prayer of faith to God. And if you don't know what to pray, you can pray these words from Scripture. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Let's lift that prayer up to God this morning. Father, we come today in Jesus' name. And we gather, Lord, to feast in your house, Lord. We just sang that this morning. And we pray that you would be faithful to your church today, Lord. Your steadfast love is above the heavens. And your faithfulness, Lord, is beyond our comprehension, our comprehension today. And Lord, we desire to be partakers this morning of your perfect never failing, infinite faithfulness to your own word. And so we pray this morning, Lord, speak for your servants are listening. Strengthen our souls today according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to talk about a famous interruption during the earthly life, the earthly ministry of Jesus. And I hope you see before our time is over this morning that our God intends to use this famous interruption in the Gospels to nourish our souls this morning. And so let's give attention to God's Word, Matthew chapter 12, and we'll pick it up in verse 46. We'll go to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. All right, before we begin to break down this passage, I want to mention two things uh, regarding context that we're going to bring into this passage. 
And maybe a good entry into the context is to ask this question. So we have an interruption here from the family of Jesus, the mothers and the brothers of Jesus. And I think a good question for us to ask is why is Jesus' family coming to him? Or maybe even a sharper way to ask that question is why are they coming to him now? Why here? Why now in Matthew's gospel? So I want you to notice that first phrase. In verse 46, that this interruption happens while he was still speaking, which sends us back to the context of chapter 12, of everything that's been going on in chapter 12. And and the thing that we've been seeing in Matthew chapter 12 is an intensification of this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders in Galilee, the Pharisees. And so I want you to just remember really quickly some things that we know are true from Matthew chapter 12. Jesus' claims about himself are getting clearer and clearer and clearer. They're getting more direct in Matthew chapter 12. He's claimed to be, just in one chapter, he's claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He's claimed to be greater than the temple. He is claimed to be greater than the prophet Jonah. He has claimed to be greater than King Solomon. And so, you know, this is not vague. This is beginning really clear that this man from Nazareth is making astonishing claims about his own nature. And at the same time that things are getting clearer and clearer regarding Jesus, things are getting clearer and clearer regarding Jesus' enemies. And so in this chapter, if you look back at Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, is the first time we learn in Matthew's gospel that these men intend to kill Jesus. It says in verse 14 that they begin to plot against him of how they might destroy Jesus Christ. And so they have a murder plot in their hearts. Things are intensifying. Um, and, And in verse 45, just before our passage this morning... Jesus rebukes the whole generation. In Matthew 12, verse 45, Jesus calls this generation an evil generation. Um, They're worse than every generation. Jesus uses this parable. They're worse than every generation in Israel that preceded them because of the amount of light that they have rejected. That first generation might have rejected, you know, the exodus and all the signs of Egypt. But this last generation has rejected the Son of God in the flesh. And so Jesus indicts them as an evil generation. He rebukes them. Now, I don't know how much experience you have in dealing with people that hate you. But let me just mention this. This is typically how this works. If somebody hates you and they're opposed to you, and you say back to them, you are evil. Okay, You are an evil generation. Typically, if you don't know how this works, that doesn't de-escalate the tension. Typically, that escalates the conflict. And so that's what I want you to understand. That's the frame of Matthew 12, is this conflict is escalating between Jesus and his enemies. All right. What about the family of Jesus? What about the family of Christ? In the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 13, and you can take a quick peek there. You don't have to turn there. Verses 55 and 56 
tell us explicitly that the Lord Jesus had brothers and sisters. He had siblings. Now, there are some uh, in the church, in the history of the church, that have held to the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, that once Jesus was born, you know, Mary and Joseph never consummated this marriage. And there are a couple of ways that this is, you know, explained away. Um, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, maybe they were cousins, maybe they were sons and, and daughters of Joseph from a previous marriage. This is a Roman Catholic tenet. Also, Protestants have toyed with this doctrine. But the most natural way to read these references to Jesus' brothers and sisters are exactly that. There is brothers and sisters. That after Jesus was born, uh, 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 conceived and born um, from the Virgin Mary, uh, Joseph and Mary had a natural, holy marriage. And there were siblings born through Mary to Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew 13 gives us four names of Jesus' brothers. Okay? He had sisters and he had brothers. Here's the names of four. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, one other jump real quick before we come back to Matthew 12. Is if you go to John chapter 7 verse 5. We learn that Jesus' brothers during his earthly ministry did not believe that he was the Christ. Um, and this is explicitly what John tells us. Uh, now, just take that one fact for just a moment. And that's a reminder to us that his own brothers, his earthly siblings, did not believe that he was the Christ. At least during his earthly ministry, there's evidence that after his resurrection they did. But think about how that clarifies the, the veiledness of the glory of Christ. During his earthly ministry, during his incarnation. In other words, you know, you could have been in the same room with the Son of God made flesh and you could have not even known, you know, who were you were beholding. And even further than that, you could have spent two decades in the same house with the Lord Jesus and been blind to his true nature because his glory was veiled in the incarnation. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 suggests that it was not until... After the resurrection of Jesus, when he appeared in his resurrected body to James, one of his brothers, the scriptures suggest that not until the resurrection did his brother James bow at his feet, call him king, worship him as God, and spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So this is the siblings of Jesus. What about Mary? What about Mary? This is a little harder to understand in Matthew 12. Because early in the Gospels, Mary is presented to us as a believer. She is commended for her faith. She is given revelation from the angel Gabriel. She's given an announcement from heaven that she is going to bear not only a special child... But the name of this child is going to be God with us, Emmanuel. That she is going to bear a divine son. And that she is to call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So she's going to bear a divine son, and he's going to be the savior of the world. And the Bible says she is commended for her faith because she took God at his word. She believed that announcement from heaven. 
If you go to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1 calls Mary the mother of the Lord, which is an exalted title. And then two verses later, Luke 1 verse 45 says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so I would submit to you this morning that the Bible leads us to believe that Mary not only has faith in God, she has faith in Christ. Blessed is she who believes. Yet, in Luke chapter 2, there was a man named Simeon who prophesied about Mary. Listen to this prophecy, Luke 2.34. Simeon told Mary that Jesus would be a sword, listen, that would pierce through her own soul. And so Simeon prophesied that Jesus, at some point in Mary's life, would bring her to a point of crisis, that he would pierce through her, even her own soul, that she would be brought to a crisis of faith. All right, that brings us back to Matthew chapter 12, the family of Jesus. Why here? Why now? Let me say what I don't think Matthew is doing. I don't believe Matthew's intention is to present Jesus' family as showing up on the scene to directly oppose Jesus. That's the role of the Pharisees in Matthew 12. They're there and they're full-throated opposition and enemies to Christ. Rather, I believe Matthew is presenting Jesus' unbelieving family as showing up in the midst of this intensifying conflict in an attempt to rescue Jesus from the consequences that he's going to face from quarreling with these Pharisees. In other words, they are showing up to try to save his life. Jesus, remember, he's claiming, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am greater than the temple. And they know, just like every other Jew knows, that they're not going to let this go on forever. The Pharisees are not going to tolerate this kind of speech forever. And this is exactly what Mark's version of this story tells us. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, tells us that Jesus' family comes on the scene in order to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. And they, they show up and they're trying to drag him off the scene. And, they, and, and the basic disposition is you don't understand what you're saying. You don't understand what's about to happen to you. So to summarize... The siblings of Christ at this point in the earthly ministry of Jesus are unbelievers. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a believer experiencing unbelief. And they both are attempting to rescue Jesus Christ. One commentator said this about Mary, and I thought this was a great summary. Here we see a nervous mother in a moment of weakness... Attempting to hold back her consecrated son from danger. Alright, this is the context. This is the family shows up on the scene. They intrude in the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 48. Let's see the response of Jesus. His family shows up and Jesus asks a question. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, there's some wrong ways to understand this, and one definitely wrong way to understand this, okay? And teenagers in the room, don't try this at home, okay? A definite wrong way to understand this is, see, Jesus disrespected, you know, his family, and therefore, boom, I can, you know, disrespect 
my family. Jesus never broke God's commandments. One of God's holy commandments, commandment number five, is to honor your father and your mother. He never broke that. Jesus honored his father and mother all the days of his life. So scrap that. That can't be what's going on here is that he's disrespecting and dishonoring. And neither can this question be explained like this. Well, Jesus here is degrading the you know, uh, importance of the family, that he's downplaying the importance of earthly family and our obligations to our earthly family. And again, that cannot be the case because God gives us commandments and duties. God, God's word calls our earthly family a blessing. It is a gift from God. And not only blessing, God's word gives us duties that we have as sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Um, and so Jesus, he's not downplaying everything else God's word says about uh, respect and love in the earthly family. And in fact, you know, this would be a good time to remind us that the Bible says if you, if you are a Christian and you have this hyper view of grace that once the gospel changes you and your sins are forgiven and you have the Holy Spirit, all this earthly stuff doesn't matter anymore. Okay? Um, if that's you, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul, actually, there's a verse in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 that says if, you, if we go down that road, we're worse than an unbeliever. Now, whole nother sermon of what that means to be worse than an unbeliever. I have no idea what that means. But I know this, it ain't good. It is not good to be worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says this, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, listen, he is denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. And so Jesus is not degrading or downplaying the importance of, of the earthly family. Rather, Jesus is teaching us the proper order, the proper placement, how we are pri to prioritize our earthly family. In other words, he's given a corrective word here, not only to his own family, but to, to the culture around him, that the allegiance to the earthly family is real, but it's not ultimate. It's not in the place of supremacy. The place of supremacy and the, and the ultimate allegiance is to God alone. He is Lord. And so this comment, this question is not to be understood that Jesus is saying family is unimportant. It is a clarifying reminder from Jesus Christ that family is not all important. It's not the supreme thing. Now, if we've been you know, reading Matthew's, Matthew's gospel, if we have been disciples of Jesus sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching, this kind of way of speaking should not surprise us at all. Because Jesus has several times already in Matthew's gospel, he's already taught his disciples about the ultimate allegiance belongs to God, even if that means uh, uh, distance between you and your earthly family. So let me remind you of two of these references in Matthew's gospel. This is what Jesus has been teaching his disciples. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 22 is a story where a man comes to Jesus and he says, let me uh, bury my father and then, Jesus, I will come to follow you. 
In other words, he presented Jesus with, you know, this reversal of priorities. Can I take care of this thing and then follow you? And you remember what Jesus said, Matthew 8, 22, Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, allegiance to God before allegiance to anybody else. He does this again in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, just understand what Jesus is saying. If we have these allegiances to our earthly family and we place those allegiances above our allegiance to Christ and God, Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. I sit at the very top and nowhere else. So we have this warning in his teaching of placing family above the Lord our God. Now, this is what he's taught his disciples. Okay? And now in Matthew 12, we see Jesus, he practices what he preaches. He doesn't just call for this ultimate allegiance that he himself doesn't live out. He he practices what he preaches. In other words, in Matthew 12, when Jesus is tempted... He did not allow his love for his earthly family to turn him away from doing the will of the Father. Which in Matthew 12 was teaching these crowds about the kingdom of God. This is a lesson about priorities and ultimate allegiances. And Jesus goes on in verse 49 and he makes another important distinction. Not only in a matter of allegiance... But he makes a further distinction between two different kinds of families in this passage. He says in verse 49, he looks at his disciples and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now think about how curious that is. Like, she didn't give birth to you and like he didn't grow up in your house. What do you mean, Jesus, that your disciples are your mother and your brother? And so Jesus makes in this passage a distinction between earthly family and his spiritual family. Between those who don't believe in him and those who are his disciples. Those who do the will of God. And what Jesus does in this passage is he more closely identifies, this is striking, with his spiritual family, with his disciples, than he identifies with his earthly family. And again, this is instructing us in this area of priorities. And I wonder if you feel challenged by that this morning. That our love for the people of God should trump all the other natural loves that we have in this world. You understand that? An example of this would be, there's nothing wrong with loving your country and having a sense of place Um, that you belong to a group of people, okay? Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. In other words, Christianity is not the religion where you love all the nations except the nation you're a part of. That's not Christianity, okay? Um, However, I hope you understand this, that you have more in common with a Chinese brother that believes the gospel 
Even if he can't speak English, than you do with someone who you went to high school with that doesn't know Christ. In other words, the allegiances, the ties, they run deeper in the spiritual family, in the family of God. And I wonder if you feel challenged just by Jesus showing this allegiance to his spiritual family as a reminder that we must love and identify with the people of God. But there's an amazing truth here. That's an aside. There is an amazing truth in verses 49 and 50. And really, this is the main point of this passage. So if you're wondering, man, what are we talking about today? Okay. The main point of this passage is that the natural family of Jesus is not the family that ultimately matters. The spiritual family of Jesus is the family that ultimately matters. Now, I don't want you to miss the implications of that truth for the believer. And so I want to mention just a few. Okay? Imagine the privilege. So understand, earthly family is not what ultimately matters. The spiritual family is what ultimately matters. Now, imagine the privilege of being the brother or the sister of the Lord Jesus. During his earthly life. In other words, is that a a net gain or a net loss? Is that a privilege? Absolutely, that's a privilege. To grow up under the same roof as the God-man, the one who never sinned. To have before you a constant example and a picture of perfect righteousness. To be loved by this brother that would never sin against you. What a privilege. Think about it. For almost two decades to be in the closest of relationships with Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, Jesus is teaching us in this passage that you are more blessed to be numbered among his disciples than to be numbered among his earthly siblings. In other words, Christian that's here this morning, you are more blessed than you have ever realized. The the blessings run deeper than you can ever count. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ our Savior. More blessed just to be counted among the disciples of Jesus than to be in His inner circle, even His own brother or sister during His earthly life. Think of this contrast. Of if you were, you know, the, the biological uh, brother and sister of Jesus, think of how many meals you would have shared with him. You know, eating matzah and hummus and all the fellowship, you know, around this Jewish table uh, and all the memories that would be made. And then contrast it to this Jesus promises the believer that we will dine with him at his table forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. In other words, you have 20 years of meals and table fellowship with Jesus Christ in this example. And then in this other example, you have 20 million years and then 20 million years. And then it just keeps going a face to face fellowship with our Lord Jesus. Do you understand how blessed you are to be marked off in this group of the disciples, the true mothers, the true brothers, the true sisters of Jesus? 
And even more amazing, think of the privilege of Mary. The Bible says that she is blessed among women. In the same way that the Bible says that there was no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And so Mary has this privilege that exceeds every other natural earthly privilege of any woman that has ever drawn breath in this world. Imagine the privilege to give birth to the God-man. To be the mother of God in the flesh. To nurse and nurture the one who is destined to save the world and even your own soul. And to see him develop from his, his youngest years and he can't, he can't speak and he can't walk and he's so helpless and he trusts you for everything. You see him develop into this full grown God man. Picture of perfect righteousness, totally devoted to his father in heaven. The privilege of Mary was great. And it's hard for us to even overstate it. And yet, Jesus' instruction in verses 49 and 50 tell us that it is more blessed, listen, to be numbered among Jesus' disciples than to be his earthly mother. And I just really want to, to ask you to receive that. Let, let God's word press that in this morning. You think, man, if I could have just had more proximity and more exposure, if I could have been just right there. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I more closely identify with those who have faith in me, who follow me as Lord than even my own earthly family. I want to mention this. Think of the implications of this move that Jesus has made in this passage for Roman Catholic theology. Roman Catholics hold Mary to be so high above the saints, above the normal believer, that she functions as a mediator or a mediatrix between believers and Christ. In other words, they, they hold her as so holy, so above the normal people of God. And I want to give you this quote from St. Augustine. And he says this. It is better to be a disciple than to be the mother of God. It is better to have believed in Jesus than to have given birth to him. And I just want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you understand how blessed you are and how much grace has been poured out in your soul that you have faith in Christ and to be numbered among his disciples? That's exactly the distinction that Jesus is making in this passage. Verse 49, Jesus calls his disciples his mothers and his brothers and his sisters. And I want you to understand on what basis. Like there's no biological basis here. So how can he say this? In other words, what's the ground for this title? This truth. And look at verse 50. Jesus references... This commonality that is shared between he and his spiritual brothers and sisters. And that commonality is they do the will of his father in heaven. In other words, 
It works like this. Because we have the same father that Jesus had, we are his, you got it, his mothers and his brothers and his sisters. That's the ground. In other words, what's the ground for this relationship with Christ? The commonality is we have God as our father. And so lying underneath these words is a glorious Christian doctrine. It's called the doctrine of adoption. And this doctrine is revealed much more clearly as the New Testament unfolds, as the New Testament is written, especially by the Apostle Paul, but also the Apostle John. The doctrine of adoption. It's a glorious truth. It reminds us that not only are we forgiven of our, all of our sins when we trust in Jesus Christ. The judge, as it were, gets off the bench. He pronounces us righteous completely, 100%, totally righteous, as righteous as Jesus is righteous because we have his righteousness through faith in Christ. And, is, and the doctrine of adoption is this, this judge gets off the bench and then welcomes us in his own arms as our father in heaven and we become his children. It's a glorious doctrine. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. He tells us that we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Sons of God through faith in, in Jesus Christ. And even in that passage, all the sisters in the room, in that passage you're a son because that son there has connotations of the heir, the inheritance. You get the same thing because you're in the same Jesus. We are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. John says it this way, John 1 verse 12. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I want you to understand that an amazing thing has happened to the Christian. The Bible tells us who we once were. And you, you say, well, man, I didn't even know that. I mean, there's all kinds of things we don't know until God reveals it to us in his word. And in his word, he tells us that we were, un we, we were once, all of us, by nature, children of wrath. Children of wrath, sons and daughters of the devil. And yet, through the grace of God, we have become children of the living God. Adopted into the family of the living God. Called by the name of the living God. Ephesians 2 says it this way, uses this language. We were once far off. But now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And listen, so near is glorious that we're so near by the blood of Jesus that we know God, listen, as our Father in heaven. And the commandment to the Christian is not stay away from me, but it's draw near through the new and living way that Jesus has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This, this doctrine runs deeper than the fatherhood of God. This is actually a Trinitarian blessing that not only do we have God as our Father through faith in Jesus Christ, this passage especially highlights 
that we have Jesus as our brother. Jesus looks to the disciples and he says, these, these are my mothers and sisters and brothers. And so understand how blessed you are this morning as a believer is, is you have Christ as your brother. One who identifies with you. One who cares for you. One who loves you as a brother loves a brother. As a brother loves a sister. As a, bro- as a, as a son would care for his own mother. This is how closely Jesus identifies with his people. Christ is a brother to every Christian. Now, this is not only something that we need to learn about and have our minds instructed, and that does need to happen. Okay, The doctrine of, of adoption needs to be learned. It needs to be examined. You need to understand what it means, but you can't stop there because this doctrine is given to us to experience. In other words, God gives us this blessing that we would live it out, that we would live a life of confidence that we are sons and daughters of the living God. And to this end, this blessing is trinitarian. God pours out the Holy Spirit. You know who it is? Every time that you have been comforted, Every time that your soul has been nourished and you just feel so full of praise and thanks to God for what he's done for you in the gospel. You know who did that? You know whose work that was? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts Crying, Abba, Father. That's the work of the Spirit and the life of the believer that we would enjoy the closest access to God. And that phrase, Abba, Father, is to remind us of the prayer of Jesus. That's the prayer language of Jesus. And the implication there is, brothers and sisters, we have the same access that He had. We have the same access to the Father that Jesus had because we're united to Christ. We're brought into the Holy of Holies. We come to the same Father that Jesus came to. Abba, Father. This is the work of the Spirit. Stirring it up in our souls. And so we ought to to bask in this doctrine. It's something that we ought to understand. We ought to give thanks to God for. We ought to bask in this. You ought to be overwhelmed. You ought to be full of praise to God. That you were adopted into his family, that you have God as your father, that you have Christ as your brother. I want to mention something to you, because sometimes God's word gives, gives us these metaphors of God being our father, Jesus being our brother. And sometimes we have trouble really receiving these metaphors because we try to read them backwards. In other words, God is a father in the sense of what every godly father is supposed to be. He's that and more. And you don't read this backwards that if you had, you know, this abusive father that you read these things back on God. The metaphors never work like that. And I want to mention this. Think about this with me. I almost said all, but I think most of us could relate to having a relative in our family that we are apprehensive to own. You know, apprehensive to say, yeah, he's, he's my uncle. You know, maybe you have the crazy uncle, okay? Or maybe you have, you know, uh, 
a member in your family, a cousin that's the black sheep of the family, that brings shame on the family, that disappoints the family. Maybe you have ten of them, okay? We can all identify, you know, with this sense of there's certain members, whether they're really close to us or on the outer rings, that we are apprehensive to own. And I want you to understand that it's never like this with Jesus. It never works like that in the family of God. Never. Hebrews chapter 2 is an announcement to us that, listen, despite all of our weaknesses and all of our failures, and we have a lot of them, and I hope, I really hope that you're reminded of your weaknesses and failures often, Because it'll kill your pride. It'll remind you of how much you need Jesus. And in spite of all of those and every single one of them, the Bible reminds us that Jesus is not ashamed of the Christian. And this is part of that celebratory proclamation of the gospel. And so here's how he says it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. He is not ashamed to be called our brother in other words there's no you know black sheep of the family that jesus is just you know uh, he's happy to own these and this other one he's just man i just he barely got in he gets on my nerves all the time you know there's nobody that he's apprehensive to attach his name to in the church as the people of god he's not ashamed to be called by your name he's not ashamed to be called your brother now listen listen you might have one You might have 10 of these black sheep in your family. But think about this. That's all Jesus has. In other words, he is the righteous one who stands spotless in the presence of God. And everybody behind him fails to measure up. Every single one of them. Every one of his mothers, every one of his brothers, every one of his sisters breaks the law of God. Falls short of the glory of God. And look at the, the beauty of the gospel of grace. It's just like he turns to all of us who are in the church. And he's not ashamed to be called by your name. He's not ashamed to be called your brother. This is a blessing to have Jesus as your brother. The verse just prior to Hebrews 2.11 tells us that Jesus is on this mission as our older brother. And it tells us that his mission is, is that he's bringing many sons to glory. And if you ever wondered, you know, what God is doing in your life as a Christian, the Bible answers that a lot of different ways. One of the ways that the Bible answers that is you are a child of God being brought to glory. That's what's happening in your life right now. And your Savior, the founder of your salvation, is totally committed to bring you there. To present you spotless and blameless before our God. I just want to ask you, don't you love this? You have this, what seems to be so normal, this little interruption in the ministry of Jesus. His family walks in and says, we'd like to talk to you. And he uses this as a teaching opportunity To encourage our souls. And even in the goodness of God. The goodness of God sees that this story is inscripturated. Preserved in God's word. So that we can crack open the book this morning. And do what? 
feast in the house of Zion. We can be reminded of the great and the precious promises of our God through Christ. One of the things that Greg said in the Lord's Supper is the nowness of the blessings of the gospel. And one of the things that we have now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we are God's children now, the Bible says. In other words, this is not one of those blessings that you have to wait on. John goes on to say, what we will be, we don't yet know. But when we see him, we will be like him. But, but what we know right now is we are God's children right now. Right now, you have God as your father if you have faith in Jesus Christ. I want to mention one more thing here. Sometimes it's hard to receive encouragement in a state of suffering. In other words, if you have something right now that is causing pain in your soul, that something has been taken from you, whatever that suffering is that you're grieving over, and I want you, I want you to be reminded of how glorious and gracious the fatherhood of God and the gift of adoption is in the midst of suffering. Because, because what it means for you is you have a father that you can go to him and weep at his feet. You can bring all of your griefs and you can lay them out at the feet of the father who loves you. And you can be reminded that there was a time in your life where you didn't have any comforter to comfort you. All you had was a cruel master, Satan. If you tried to bring your griefs to him, he'd rub your face in the dirt. But you have a father who loves you. We can grieve at his feet, the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. All right. With this teaching, Jesus is presenting his disciples as a spiritual family. We are the spiritual family of Jesus Christ. Now, in the context, we're going to come back to the context of, of chapter 12 in Matthew's gospel. Remember that Jesus has just indicted Israel. That the last state was worse than the first. In other words, he said, you're the worst generation ever because you are the one that has rejected Christ in the flesh. But here, Jesus highlights when he says, here are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. He highlights that not everybody belongs in that evil, unbelieving generation. In other words, there's a remnant within Israel, within this you know, last generation, that's not evil. They believe him to be the Christ, the Son of God. And they're the opposite of evil. Jesus says the distinguishing mark is that they do the will of the Father who is in heaven. You see that phrase in verse 50. This is the church, the disciples of Jesus. And I want you to understand this move here. You have... Israel, according to the flesh, is judged by Christ. And you have Christ mark off this remnant. And this remnant is the true Israel. The church of Jesus. The true family of God. And Jesus says that they are marked off and distinguished by their obedience to the will of the Father. Now, this is not the only place where the Bible makes a distinction between the saved and the lost as obedient and disobedient. And so I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. It's probably the clearest place in the Bible that we see this truth. And I want you to understand it carefully. 
First John chapter three, verse seven says, little children, let no one deceive you, which means somebody is going to try to deceive you about what follows. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So I want you to understand that it is right to make a distinction between those who obey God and those who disobey God. Okay, And I want us to understand this distinction carefully. It's even right to understand the saved are the ones who obey God and you know the lost are the ones who disobey God. And, and that does not mean that we're saved by our obedience. We'll come back to that in just... A minute. It's right to make this distinction, and it's also right, listen, to examine yourself. It is right in obedience to God to examine yourself. And the, the self-examination, it, the goal is this. Am I among those, that circle that Jesus drew, you know, his finger around? The disciples, the mothers and the brothers and the sisters, those who do the will of the Father, am I in that group? It is obedience to God to examine yourself in this way, to determine if you are a Christian, to determine if you do the will of the Father in heaven. You could even say it this way. Only those who do the will of God will be saved. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. But only the one who does the will of my Father. And so doing the will of God is not just knowing the will of God. It's not just knowing the name of Jesus. It's not just saying the name of Jesus. It's something that you do. It's, it's an act of obedience. It's, a, it's an act of submission. And so there's a big distinction that the Bible makes between merely knowing and, and being a mere hearer of the word. Versus being a doer of the word. And James chapter 1 uh, mentions that this is one of the ways that we can deceive ourselves. Is we hear it. Hear the word. And maybe we even understand the word. And the deception goes like this. Therefore I know I'm saved. I know I'm in this group. And James says don't be deceived. And be hearers only. Be doers of the word. Be doers of the word of God. Now. It's important when we get into this obedience being a mark of Christian salvation, it is critical, it is eternally critical that you understand what I'm going to call this morning the root fruit principle. Okay? And I'm going to explain that. The root fruit principle as it relates to faith and works. 
And so we have this group that is a part of the family of Jesus. And, and the distinguishing mark of this family is they do the will of the Father in heaven. That's just plain what verse 50 says. Now, the question is this. Are we a part of God's family because we obey? Or is it the exact opposite? Do we obey because we're part of God's family? I'll say that again. Are we part of God's family because we obey? Or do we obey because we're part of God's family? And this is so important. It's the difference between the true and the false gospel. In other words, is our obedience the root of our relationship with God or the fruit of our relationship with God? And this root fruit, you know, works in all kinds of ways. You, you, how do you know, you know, if a root that you're looking at is a tomato root? Well, if it, you know, go up the trunk of the plant, you have, boom, tomato fruit. Tomato fruit is evidence of what? Tomato root. And it never works the other way, right? Like you don't have a tomato fruit and then chase it up the you know, trunk of the plant and then come over and then boom, uh, banana fruit. In other words, always, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an irrevocable connection between root and fruit. And Jesus does this all over the Gospels. Bad root equals bad fruit. Good root equals Good fruit. This is why Jesus says several times already in Matthew's gospel, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. In other words, you have to have your root transformed before you ever see fruit. I'll give you an earthly example of this. A lot of times we'll see, and this has happened with my kids, you know, many times, we'll see a child that looks, you know, strikingly similar to their parents. Especially if you go back and like look at a picture of their parent, you know, when their parent was really young. And you're like, man, I don't even have to ask, you know, uh, who your dad is um, or who your mom is. It's just this striking resemblance that is there. Now, all of us make this connection automatically that the similarity is fruit of the root. In other words, none of us understand. You see, you know, a kid, you know who their parent is. There's this striking similarity, and it never works like this. Oh, man, you look so similar to your parent, therefore you are your, your parent's child. It's backwards every time. It's I know you are your parent's child because of this similarity between you and your father. And our obedience to the will of God is our, uh, uh, that striking similarity to our Father in heaven. It's the fruit of our relationship with God. It's the fruit of faith in Christ. Our obedience is evidence we are saved, not grounds by which we are saved. That is the difference between the gospel of works and the gospel of the grace of God that transforms us from dead in our trespasses and sins to raise, to walk in newness of life. This is why this root fruit principle is also why any Christian that really understands biblical obedience can never take pride in it. It's something that when it happens in our life, when we bear the fruits of obedience, when we 
do the will of our Father, because of this root fruit principle, it's never something that we can beat our chest and say, look what I did. Because it's always the fruit of grace. It's always the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit at work in our lives. But listen, it's always there. The fruit is always there. The Spirit never does His work without placing His seal upon His work. And so you need to understand this root fruit principle as it relates to the gospel. Now, with that important reminder about Christian obedience, that it proceeds from faith, that it proceeds from the indwelling Spirit, part of what should happen often in your life as a Christian is a renewal to resolve to obey your Father in heaven. So I just want to clear the deck, okay? Obedience is not a bad word for the Christian, okay? Obedience is a good word. This is one of the ways we please our Father in heaven. Now, obedience, wrongly understood, obedience from the heart of works righteousness is offensive to God. But the obedience of faith, the obedience... Of, of grace that's wrought by the Spirit of God pleases God. And in this passage, Jesus says it distinguishes the church from the world. And so, brothers and sisters, often in your life as a follower of Jesus, you should come back and renew this resolve to I want to obey my God. I want to obey Him, not just in the big things, but in everything. Why? Because He's Lord. He's my king. Just like faith honors Jesus as our savior, our obedience honors Jesus as our king. And Jesus is just as much a king to be obeyed as he is a savior to be trusted. This is one of the ways that we please God as we submit our life to his will, which is revealed to us in his word. And so Jesus tells us that the nature of the church, not only are we the family of God, we are obedient. We are the saints, brothers and sisters, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's just what a Christian is. Now, two more clarifiers about Christian obedience. And the first is this. Christian obedience is always imperfect in this life. And you need to know that. And this is why we can never ground our salvation and our assurance on our obedience. Why? Because it's never perfect in this life. I mean, think about that. Think about if your foundation was an imperfect foundation, you have good day, bad day salvation. Saved on good days, not saved on bad days. So you need an unshakable foundation. And that the only place where you can find this is the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. And so Christian obedience is never perfect in this life. It will only be perfected when we see our Lord face to face and we're glorified forever in his presence. And one of the things I feel compelled to mention here is the temptation not to come to Christ until you feel that you sufficiently grieved your sin. You understand that? That sometimes we can understand, yeah, I know my obedience is not perfect. But the gospel call goes out, and I just had a conversation just a few weeks ago with someone about this. The gospel call goes out, and the response is not there because they don't feel that they have 
felt sufficiently sorry enough for how much that they have grieved God. You need to understand this. Even your repentance is imperfect in this life. Do you know this about yourself? Even your sorrow over your sin. Thomas Watson says this, that even our tears of repentance have to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Do you know you're that sinful? That even your sorrow over your sin has to be mediated by your great high priest. The stains of it, the weaknesses of it have to be removed for it to be acceptable to God. And so I want to correct this. Uh, you know, th- even this morning is, is who told you that you have to feel a certain level of sorrow before you come to Christ? Who told you that? The devil told you that. Somebody made that up. That didn't come from Christ. The call of the gospel is to come. To come. If you wait around until you feel that your repentance is sufficient and perfect, guess what? You're going to wake up in hell. Because it will never be there. You'll never measure up. And it's just one more way how our sinful, twisted heart tries to smuggle in works righteousness before God. Of God, look at my repentance. Look at how sorry I am. We need to be washed clean from our sins, from the stains of our guilt. And so if this is you this morning, this is, this is a, the call of grace. Get your eyes off of yourself. Get them off of yourself. If you know you're a sinner, you know everything that you need to know about yourself. The only hope for you is to fling to Christ, to fly to the Lord Jesus, to bring your weak faith, to bring your imperfect repentance to your perfect, strong Savior, the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 55.1 says it like this, Come and buy bread and wine without money and without price. Don't try to bargain with your God. Understand the freeness of the gospel. Not by works that we have done. Number two, last reminder, our obedience as Christians is progressive in this life. Not only is it imperfect, it is progressive. The Bible says that we are being conformed, present tense, into the image of Jesus Christ. That there's real growth that is happening by the grace of God through the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. And we must grow. We have to grow. Brothers and sisters, don't think that the Christian life is sitting on your blessed assurance until your Savior comes and returns. Christian life is about obedience. It's about bringing your life and all the parts of your life in submission to your King and His Word. He rules the church by His royal scepter, the Word of God. And I want you to see how comprehensive this is. We are being conformed into the image of Jesus. And that means that nobody in this room has arrived. There's work to be done. There's a king to be obeyed. There are commandments to be kept. There is Christ-like character to be put on and to grow in. There's a church to be built up. There's a world to be evangelized. And God's word calls us to be diligent. We are those who are to be doing the will of our Father in heaven. This is what sets us apart as believers. And so I want to encourage you today, resolve to renew your obedience to God. Cry out to the Lord to be restored in your soul, restored in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. All right, let's pray together. Let's call on the name of the Lord.
Father, we thank you for your word and we bless your holy name. And God, we pray that your word would come down in our life today like rain, that you would come to us, Lord, that you would strengthen your church. God, we pray that you would draw that wayward one, that you would draw men, that you would be the shepherd of the sheep who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Glorify your holy name in our midst. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.